Everyone takes certain things in life for granted. Uh, we all have things which we no longer question about reality, but we just, we just assume now in our approach to the world. So, for instance, I'm just assuming that this lectern isn't going to spontaneously explode in a shower of baby seahorses. Why? Why do I think such a thing? Where does that standard of reality come from? It's linked to my worldview. I have a framework of ideas and beliefs through which I interpret reality and with which I interact with the world. We all do. Uh, you don't even have to think about it. You just assume that the chair you're sitting on isn't going to suddenly evaporate into a cloud of steam. You're not even thinking about it. Why? Because the laws of science are consistent, right? That's just, and that's what they are, too. They're laws. As well, all of us have standards in place by which we can discover more truth about the world, don't we? How do you discover truth about the world? You have a standard for that. Uh, we all do. Uh, standards that dictate the limits of reality, the limits of human knowledge. When I'm standing in line at the grocery store and I read on the cover of that ridiculous rag, Weekly World News, that President Joe Biden is actually the unholy spawn of Bigfoot and aliens, I don't give it a second thought. The notion is ludicrous. That, that, that notion transgresses the bounds of reality as I believe reality to be. Uh, but others, this is frightening, others will buy that tabloid thinking such a thing to be within the realm of possibility. Their worldview allows for that, that Joe Biden could be the unholy spawn of Bigfoot and aliens. As well, we all have standards which inform our morality, standards which inform our ethics, don't we? Everyone, from, from Gandhi to Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler had a moral compass. And when we combine all these standards, that's called a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a reasonably comprehensive interpretation of reality, whether it's thought through or not. And I mentioned that last part about it being thought through because not everybody lives a life that's consistent with their worldview. Uh, the atheist, for example, the person who believes life is just a matter of evolutionary chance, matter in motion, molecules bumping into each other. The atheist will still make absolute moral pronouncements about good and evil, which is preposterous. The atheist will say it's morally wrong to plunge a butcher knife into a baby. It's not just a, a sociological convention that we say it's wrong. It's wicked, they will say. But that moral pronouncement is inconsistent with a naturalistic worldview. The preconditions for morality do not exist in an atheistic worldview, murder, rape, genocide, uh, that's just bags of chemicals doing stuff to other bags of chemicals. To be morally outraged by murder, the atheist must borrow moral capital from the theist, the person who believes that there is such a thing as good and evil because there is an eternal creator God who is good and who hates evil and who has disclosed his will on the matter. Atheism inherently is a bankrupt system. And for the atheist to appeal to science or the laws of logic or morality, yet deny God's existence, is like a little child who is able to reach up and slap their father's face only because the father is holding that child in his arms. But... 
Christians, too, we're certainly not immune from living lives inconsistent with our worldview. And that's what I want to preach about today from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Christian consistency. Living lives consistent with what we know about reality because God has revealed it to us in Holy Scripture. And where do we find the greatest instance of Christian inconsistency? It's in our sin. In our lack of obedience to God. When we love this world and the stuff of this world more than God, more than holiness. When our behavior belies our worldview. Last week, we considered the subject of death. We spent a whole sermon on this topic. We weren't studying the existential wranglings of philosophers, but rather God's revealed truth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, the teacher tells us, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than to a baby shower. Why? Because death comes to us all. It's our certain mutual destiny. And in the house of mourning, and it's in the house of mourning where we're going to be asking those hard questions of life. There's no escaping the corpses at the front of the room. It's the wise person, not the morbidly preoccupied person, but the wise person who prepares for death, who lives life in light of death, who expects death. And if by God's grace we're not laboring under, under, a, under the sun perspective then we will have a biblical framework, right? A salvation, historical structure into which to place our own mortality, which then enables us to have a consistent perspective with the hope of the resurrection to come. New City, if we would live consistently as Christians, then we must see our death for what it truly is, God's judgment for our sin. If we would live consistently as Christians, we must see Jesus' death for what it truly is. God's judgment against our sin. And if we would live consistently as Christians, we must see Jesus' return and our glorification for what it truly is. Jesus' full victory over sin and the grave. Anything less, anything less than that is merely an under-the-sun perspective leading only to vanity, hopelessness, despair, and futility. Things which are inconsistent with the Christian worldview. Just as moral outrage is inconsistent with the atheistic worldview. So if you look at your bulletins on rule number one, we're looking at two rules today. Christian, to live consistently, we must trust in God's sovereign providence and timing. Verses 1 through 20 of Ecclesiastes 7. Koheleth, the teacher... He writes in verse 3, so he's still talking about death. This is following verses 1 and 2. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. So a person may look at someone who is mourning the loss of a loved one and have their inner life transformed for the better. The heart of the wise, verse 4, is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. That's to say, death is the object of the wise person's reflections. Their their heart is in the house of mourning. They don't stick their head in the sand. They don't drown out the thunderous chorus of their own mortality in the houses of pleasure, right? The clubs, the bars, the bathhouses, the brothels. 
Verse 5, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under the pot. So is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Fools laugh at death. They make light of death. On their birthday, they get drunk, they sing songs, they dance the night away, they wake up next, next morning in bed with a stranger, never giving their mortality a second thought, even though they're one day closer now to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps they are living a life that's consistent, that's in accord with their worldview, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I mean, that, that is a worldview of sorts. It's pretty paltry, but it is a worldview. It's a worldview of many, but as we've seen, any foundation for knowledge that's actually not based on the, on the triune God who has revealed himself in Scripture is futile. It's a futile life, and a life lived outside of obedience to Jesus Christ is a wasted life. If you would turn to Psalm 90, I actually, my closing prayer last week was based on this psalm. Let's just read this text. Psalm 90, it's on page 592, if you're using our church Bible. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, God has granted us a perspective on life and death that transcends the unaided philosophy of the greatest human minds. By God's grace, if we're Christians, right, we've seen our sin and we've taken sides with God against ourselves. We see our mortality as the just judgment of God for our transgressions against him. By God's grace, we do, in fact, number our days. God has given us that heart of wisdom. Through his spirit, God has opened our eyes to the teachings of scripture, right? Through his spirit, God has revealed to us the beauty and the excellency, the all-sufficiency of his eternal son, Jesus Christ, and his finished cross work. By God's grace, we are trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, the world's only savior, the one who gives hope in the face of death, the one who cancels the power of sin, the one whose return we look to with delight because it signals the day of our own glorification and triumph over the grave. And yet, with all these privileges, with all this knowledge, still, as Christians, we live inconsistently. There's still sin. There's still disobedience, discontentment, 
and a great love for the things of this world. We still fret and are anxious about the same things our pagan neighbors fear. Even though Jesus has overcome the world, even though he is absolute sovereign over everything, over the entire universe. I don't, I don't want to use this word inconsistency either to sound like a euphemism. Like sometimes people speak of sin as being like missing the mark. That is as euphemistic as it gets, in my opinion. Um, loved ones, this inconsistency I'm talking about right now is a functional denial of the gospel. We live inconsistent lives. For instance, we have all this wisdom, but money can make us inconsistent fools. Look at verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Or we become inconsistent fools where time is involved, which is where the teacher really zeroes in for these next few verses. Think about it. We, we speak constantly of the blessing of God's own good sovereign timing, don't we? I mean, come to our prayer meeting. You hear this all the time being spoken of. We pray through that kind of stuff. We can certainly talk the talk. The blessing of God's own good sovereign timing. We speak of the consolation of knowing that God's timing is perfect and that his providences are kind. They're holy. And so we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fret or be anxious over. But in disobedience, in an inconsistent, rebellious overturning of our entire worldview, we worry. Or we're provoked to anger by a situation over which God is in sovereign control. Or we fear. But to do so is to give way to the worldview of the fool, the person who has no God. It's to live inconsistently with what we know, what we know is the truth. Verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. In all cases, in every case, it's better to wait for God's timing than to be impatient. If we're impatient for God to do something in our lives right now, if we grow angry, frustrated, anxious, whatever. That's sin. Let's call it for what it is. It's sin. It's a functional denial of God's sovereignty. Neither must we wish for the good old days. Christian, in your life, you must be ready for hardship. You must be ready for discipline and suffering. You must expect it. It's coming. It's certainly coming that your faith might be refined. God doesn't want you to remain spiritually stagnant in the blessings of yesteryear. Which means he is going to push you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to providentially place you in situations that will make you cling to him and trust him and pray out to him. And that's going to happen during adversity. It's going to happen during hard times. So don't keep wishing for the good old days back when life was great. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? Or it is not wise to ask such questions. So here's a great opportunity just to pause for a moment and to do an honest evaluation of our hearts. 
Are we living lives of Christian consistency as it relates to time? Are we trusting in God's sovereign, good providence in all that we're experiencing right now, in all we're going through, in all we're enduring, in all our waiting? Do we really believe his timing is perfect? Be honest. Is there complaint? Is there discontent? Is there anxiety, fear, impatience, anger? Is what you used to have or what you used to be able to do in the past or what you could have or could do in the future, is that distracting you from your faithful Christian discipleship now in the present? Are you living inconsistently? Our anxiety and worry about tomorrow, our our self-indulgent nostalgia for yesterday, our dissatisfaction with today, and our inordinate yearning for the greener pastures of the future. It's all sin. It's all a functional denial of the gospel and what's ours in Christ Jesus. Now, someone could be thinking, Pastor John, I mean, you're, you're, you don't know the hardships I'm experiencing right now, what I'm going through. My, my present circumstances are abominable. Well, sometimes God chooses to bless us and make us people of integrity and great faith in the midst of abominable circumstances rather than change our circumstances. This is a relatively young crowd, all right? We need to get this under our belts now. Sometimes God chooses to bless us and make us people of integrity and great faith in the midst of abominable circumstances rather than change our circumstances. Joseph's life hadn't hit a snag when his brothers sold him into slavery when Potiphar threw him into jail because of his wife's lies, right? Altogether, that amounted to 13 years of hardship for Joseph, 13 years. But all the while, God was with Joseph, blessing him, keeping him in faithful dependence upon him, making him a man of integrity, even during his deepest, deepest trials. Beloved, if that theology isn't informing our day-to-day experience, then we need to bring our our lives in line with Scripture. Uh, We need to strive, by God's grace, to live consistently. Really, to look this in the eyes and actually, I need to live consistently. I need to repent, you know. In accordance with all the biblical worldview we profess, the inscripturated revelation of the God that we worship, we need to bring our lives in conformity with that. We're so tempted, aren't we? Uh, to look to times past, to look into the past to when we had the good friends and the good job, the good relationship status, the good health, the good circumstances. And we want life to continue in that same vein until the day we die with no surprises and no hardships. I know I do. That's my, that's my default setting. But what that is, in fact, is discontentment with God's sovereign ordering. It's a longing for God to turn back the clock of our lives 
back to when life was great. But to be lovingly blunt, God isn't interested in our lives being reboots and remakes and sequels of years gone by. He's more concerned with our holiness, much more than our comfort. Our times are in the hands of the sovereign God, and our lives as Christians need to reflect that knowledge as we live out lives of biblical consistency. Verse 11. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? So, believer, look at your life. Look at the circumstances of your life. They are not the result of random fluke. God has purposed it all. Don't try to straighten out what God has made crooked. You're fighting against a sovereign, omnipotent God who loves you and knows what's best for you. Be wise. We need to allow all that theology we say we believe about God being sovereign and loving to have its functional impact in our lives. This is when the theology hits the road. Uh, Maybe we all need to get a tattoo of verse 14 across our foreheads. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, you cannot discover anything about your future. I'd give you a pretty big tattoo, but it'd be very helpful. Yes, we should look at with wonder at the goodness of our lives and praise God for when times are good. It's a gift from his hand. It's appropriate that we enjoy those good things, those good times. But when times are bad, God made those days too. And when those days or months or years or decades come or stay, then we need to think like people whose minds are actually informed by Scripture. We need to prayerfully consider the comprehensiveness of God's plans for us. Therefore, as verse 15 says, although people appear to be treated irrespective of their character in the providence of God, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness, that's only judging a book by its cover. It's not consistent with God's reality because it's not taking into account the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, is it? Humans judge by mere externals and in time frames that are very blinkered. And those whom we suppose to be experiencing unfair suffering, well, they may not be as good as we think they are either. Don't try to interpret sovereignty. That's the lesson today. Don't try to interpret sovereignty. Don't assume you know what God is doing based on what's happening in your life or another person's life. God does not operate on the principle of instant retribution and reward. He doesn't operate on instant karma. That's not Christianity. Look at Job, right? Job was a righteous man, the most righteous in the whole earth, yet he suffered terribly. On the other hand, Kim Jong-un, who lives in the lap of luxury, while millions in North Korea have died through his family's tyrannical cruelty, which means we either cry out with the secularist, futility, meaninglessness, vanity of vanities, or 
we put injustice into its biblical perspective. We look beyond our under-the-sun perspective, our finite perspective, beyond our paltry three score and ten, because until we consider the vantage point from the end of history, our view of God's justice at work in this fallen world is incomplete. Assessments of fairness and proportionality based solely on what takes place in this life are woefully premature. They're misguided. The cross of Jesus Christ must be brought to bear. Judgment day, heaven, hell. God doesn't think in 60-year terms. Job and Kim Jong-un both will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And on that day, justice will be done. And it will be seen to be done, but in God's timing, not ours. Verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one. That is, don't try to be super righteous and super wise, for that is impossible for sinners. You're just fooling yourself. And do not let go of the other. That is, do not choose to be very wicked, for that is to be a fool. And of course, the key to living in a world where some godly people die young and some wicked people become old, the key to living in such a paradoxical world is to fear God. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Indeed, that kind of wisdom, verse 19, makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. All right, at this point, we're going to shift gears. I've been speaking about obedience and consistency and living a holy life, but I've been making a major, major assumption throughout all these things that I've been saying. I've been assuming that what I'm preaching can, in fact, be done. I'm assuming people can live lives of faithful, consistent obedience to God. But that assumption is only true if applied to the people of God living in the new covenant age. The age of God's eschatological power, the age of the spirit, not the old covenant, the age of the law and fulfilled in the power of the flesh. Folks, I mentioned this before, but if I were a Jewish rabbi living in old covenant times, this would be a very, very different sermon. But I'm preaching this passage today as a new covenant Christian. I'm preaching this text canonically, the whole Bible, right? That's how this text is supposed to be preached, in its canonical whole Bible context. It's not just, Ecclesiastes isn't just an island unto itself. So, I'm assuming in my approach that what the New Testament teaches about the enslaving power of sin is true. As well as the reality and the necessity of the new birth that blessing of the new covenant age through God's indwelling spirit. So in our second and concluding point, we need to talk about two related issues. Our holiness, particularly as it relates to our speech and to our sexual purity, as well as the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in the believer's life. And this is how it seems to always be. As we're nearing the end of the sermon, I need to turn the theology dial up to 11. (laughs) But I know I'll have your full attention because a lot of this related to sex. All right, so point number two. Christian, to live consistently, we must obey God by the power of his Holy Spirit. We must control our tongue and live lives of sexual purity. Verses 21 to 29. A few years ago, I read a very interesting book 
about the invention of the Gatling gun, uh, the world's first machine gun. It was invented in the 1860s. The kind of, you actually even turn around to crank like this. Uh, but when this weapon was invented, the tactics of war had to change. No longer could men fight each other standing shoulder to shoulder while marching slowly across a field. I don't know why you do that in the first place, but that had to stop now. In the face of a machine gun, you could not have that kind of tactic. The weapons of war had changed, so the tactics of war had to change as well in light of that change. And in a sense, the same thing occurs in the history of salvation. You see, we cannot understand our Bibles as God intends for us to understand his word unless we understand that the glorious salvation realities brought through Jesus' death and resurrection could never, ever be contained within the framework of the Old Covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham's children at Mount Sinai. The new salvation blessings purchased for us on Jesus' cross require a whole new structure. Jesus is like new wine that ferments and explodes the old wineskin. Jesus is like a new piece of unshrunk cloth that would tear the old garment if it was foolishly sewed onto it. Because Jesus isn't an attachment or an addition to the law of Moses. He himself and the new covenant that he inaugurates through his shed blood cannot be integrated into or contained by that pre-existing legalistic covenantal structure. To lump Jesus in with the Old Testament prophets, that would be to deny his divine uniqueness. And it presses them into the service of old covenant, salvation historical categories. It's to pour new wine into old wineskins. No, no, no. The old covenant must go and a new covenant must be inaugurated to contain all these blessings. Usually, it would be helpful to think of the old covenant that Yahweh entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai like a watch that's winding down. Or better still, it's like a carton of milk. There was always, always, always an expiry date in God's mind. To God's thinking, the Mosaic Covenant was never, ever an eternal covenant. Why not? Because it could never deal in any final way with the problem of human sin. Neither sin's stain nor sin's penalty. And it also, it lacked in that covenant the power to break the shackles of a person's enslavement to sin. But the new covenant, is both eternal and it's effectual because it belongs to the new age and it partakes of the power of the new age, the person of God, the Holy Spirit. This is the difference. God himself now intervenes through his spirit in this new epoch of salvation history. And as God intervenes, he creates in his people the holiness and the obedience he calls us to. Turn to Ezekiel 36, 26. I can just read it for you. This is one of those, if you have your own Bible, you should underline this text. This is a huge text. Ezekiel 36, 26. It's a promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's a new thing. That's a new promise. Therefore, as Christians, when we read a verse like Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, we are not driven to grim despair. Verse 20 of Ecclesiastes 7. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. 
loved ones, okay, removed from the whole canon of Scripture, removed from what follows in redemptive history, verse 20 is a death sentence. It offers no hope, right? I mean, just the bleak facts of life in this fallen order. There is no gospel here. There's no good news. There is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. But the problem is bleaker still. The problem with people in our natural state without the Spirit isn't just that we commit sin. Our problem is that we are enslaved to sin. We're hopeless, helpless captives to sin's enthralling power. What's needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from the power of sin. And that sanctifying power is found only, only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we need is a savior. What we need is God's spirit living within us through whose life-giving power our slavery shackles to sin are broken. Friend, if you're here with us today and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, someone who's trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then do you want a concrete illustration of your sin? And so your need of a savior, your need of salvation, do you want a concrete illustration of that? And if you're a Christian, do you want an illustration of yet more inconsistency in your life? How about this? Our speech. We all use our tongue in the service of evil. Look at verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty or careless or insignificant word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted or justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Do you see? Our mouth reveals what's in our heart. Our our tongues act as a spiritual echocardiogram. Our speech is a spiritual sonogram which shows our heart's true spiritual condition. If I don't know what your heart is like, I just have to listen to your speech. So, how can then we who are evil say anything good? That's what Jesus asks. What's needed first is a supernatural change of the heart. Ecclesiastes 7.23 All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? And this is what the teacher has maintained all along. Unaided human wisdom is a dead end. It's epistemologically just a dead end. We can't escape our finitude, our sin, our limitations. And putting this in a whole Bible context, living wisely as people with pure hearts, with pure tongues, that's also impossible. Without God's enabling, it's beyond us. Verse 25, so I turn my mind to understanding, to investigate, to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. And and bear in mind, the teacher is coming at all this from an under-the-sun perspective. This is without the aid of divine revelation. And so the teacher thinks, well, maybe there's contentment to be found in being a stupid animal. 
and living a life of folly. So he goes out and he plumbs the depths of stupidity. And what does he find? Verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, the teacher is not condemning women universally. It's a type of woman that he's condemning and a type of man, too. Uh, Koheleth is saying, I went to search for health in the palliative care ward of a hospital. I, I looked for water in the desert. I looked for wisdom in the heart of a harlot. I plumbed the depths of sexual iniquity, and I found only a trap and, and a chain for my soul. You city, living lives of Christian consistency means living lives of sexual purity. Living lives of Christian consistency means living lives of sexual purity. Now, for anyone here who is not a believer, you need to know where Christians are coming at from this whole sex thing. Right? It's, it's nothing like the culture, but it's also nothing like the caricature that you see depicted of us in the culture. Uh, Christians are just as red-blooded and sexual as the rest of the population. Right? Christians enjoy sex very, very much. But at the same time, we believe the Bible is authoritative. This is culture transcending revelation from God. And we believe that God has the right, as God, as our creator, as the one whose image we bear, to command certain sexual limitations on his creatures. God has revealed to the world in the Bible that not all sex is in accordance with his will. Some sex constitutes defiant rebellion against his rule. There is such a thing as sexual immorality. Oh, come on, John. Sexual immorality. Are you serious? This is 2023, man. Between consenting adults, there is no such thing. Between consenting adults, anything goes. Well, Turn to page 1188 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2. I want to consider this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, page 1188 in your church Bibles. First Thessalonians 4, 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Friends, sex is a beautiful gift. It's a gift given to us by God. But in God's universe, sex is only to be shared between one man and one woman united to each other in the covenant of marriage. Period. God has decreed it. And as Christians, since it's necessary to be living in a way that pleases God and in a way that's consistent with the biblical worldview, then our sexual habits won't be one of 
just partial moderation. Rather, we'll strive in the eschatological power of God's indwelling spirit to abstain completely from all forms of sexual immorality. As Christians and as sexual beings, single or married, we are commanded by God to learn to control our bodies. That's right from that text. So that we don't enter into immoral sexual relationships. Learn to control our bodies. We're not to be reveling in passionate lust like pagans who don't know God. They're living for their own pleasure. We're living to please God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, a brother or sister in Christ. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. So do you see, for the Christian to indulge in sexual immorality is for the Christian to wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister in the Lord, since it involves deceptively taking sexual possessions reserved for another for selfish purposes. That man's body, that woman's body, that brother or sister in the Lord's body, sexually speaking, is off limits to us unless we're married to them. Their body, our body, is sexually reserved. It's reserved by God only for the marriage partner. It's off limits sexually to anybody else. And we would be defrauding our future spouse or their future spouse by taking what God has reserved only for the marriage bed. But those who live unrepentantly in this sort of disobedience will face God's judgment. Friend, if you live in defiance of God's commands, then you will be judged by Jesus on the last day for breaking his commands. Make no mistake, God's wrath burns against sexual sin, just as it burns against all sin. Ecclesiastes 7.27 Look, says the teacher, This is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. And to be honest, folks, I have no idea what he's saying there. Is this this sentiment poetical? Is this this a mathematical computation? Are are women less upright than men to a rate of 2,000 to 1? I I doubt it. (laughs) Or was Koheleth looking for purity in the same pigsty where he was wallowing? No matter the answer, the teacher's judgment of the world is bleak. Almost everyone on earth is out and out wicked. There's only one upright man among a thousand. But as depressing as that may be for the secularist to contemplate, it's consistent from a biblical perspective, isn't it? That's not a surprise to the Bible-believing Christian. He relates the human condition directly to what we saw last week in Genesis 3 and the anarchistic de-godding revolution instigated by Adam and Eve. This isn't mere philosophy. This isn't mere opinion. This is consistent with God's self-disclosure in Scripture. Verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright but they have gone in search of many schemes. So, what we need then, friends, 
is the revelation of God's mind in an accessible form to guide us, right? That's what's required here. If not, if we don't have that, then we're going to be going off and ignorantly chasing after our own schemes. If, as the Bible says, we are indeed wicked sinners who have rebelled against God in search of our own schemes, then that means that we've sinned against God himself, right? Not just some abstract law, but against God himself. God is the most offended party when we rip someone apart with our speech or indulge in sexual sin. God is the most offended party, which means we need to be reconciled to God. But as things stand presently, our sin has made us his enemy. So what can we do? What hope is there? Thanks be to God, there is reconciliation and full forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross where we see where God's wrath has been propitiated, it's been appeased and our, our sin atoned for. Believe it, believe that, friend, and be saved as you sit right there in your chair. Do you see, if, if human beings naturally are slaves to sin and unable to obey God, then what we need is God himself to empower us in our resistance against the schemes of the devil that would lure us away from God into sinful inconsistency. And that's just what God has done in sending us his spirit. The spirit who lives within each person who has called upon Jesus for salvation. Amen.